All right, so we are going to jump back into um, the book of Acts. So if you've got your Bibles or your phones, go ahead and turn to the book of Acts, chapter 5, and and we'll get there in just a minute. Now, if you haven't been around Church at Cane Bay for very long, um, I am going to catch you up real quick on what we've been doing this year. So we decided this year in 2021, we were going to go through the book of Acts together. Now, we may not make it to the end this year, um, but we have been walking through the book of Acts in the New Testament. So if you're not familiar with um, the New Testament of the Bible, so it starts off, it's the second part of the Bible, and it starts off Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those are the four Gospels. And then there's the book of Acts, and the book of Acts is the story of this movement of God called Christianity. It's the story of the church of Jesus being born and spreading out over the whole world. Now, when we started off this year, we were in Acts chapter 1 and 2. And I want you to look, we called it Ignite. Because what we were saying is that the church in in Acts 1 and 2 was born, this, this movement of followers of Jesus was born. It was set on fire by the power of God's spirit that was poured out on the church. If you go to Acts 1 and 2, you can read the story of what happened. And then when we walked through Acts 3 and 4, we called it courageous because what happened is the church wasn't just born, but it was born in the midst of a lot of hostility and opposition. I mean, look what they did to Jesus, right? They crucified him. And and even though he rose from the dead, his followers that claimed that they believed and followed Jesus, their lives were in danger and peril as well. And they began to live this crazy, risky courageous kind of faith as followers of Jesus. They they risked their money, they risked their reputations, they risked their lives for following Jesus. That's in Acts 3 and 4. And then last week, we started Acts chapter 5. And we called this section of Acts Unstoppable. And so today is the second week of this Unstoppable series. And, And the reason we're calling this section as Unstoppable is is what you're going to see, what you saw last week and this week and for the next few weeks is this, is that this movement of followers of Jesus, not only is it ignited and courageous, but it's, it overcomes all obstacles. Like anything that is put in the way of the church of Jesus will not prevail. Like, and I'm not just talking, listen, I'm not just talking about church as an institution. I'm not just talking about church at Cane Bay or Baptist church, or Methodist church, or Presbyterian church, or Catholic church. Listen, I'm talking about the church of Jesus. Followers of Jesus around this world who are doing this today, millions, hundreds of millions of people, they were ignited 2,000 years ago, and nothing will put it out. Nothing will stop it. Listen, it will overcome all opposition, all deception, all division, all attack, and even death. Nothing can stop the church of Jesus Christ because God lit a flame that cannot be put out. And we're a part of this. It's called the kingdom of God. And and listen, you guys, I know that there, in our world, I know that there are churches that seem to falter or die there are scandals. There are things that it looks like the, the church may be dying in our culture. But I can tell you, listen, I've been to Africa. Some of you have been to East Asia. We have missionaries from our church all over the world that would say this to you this morning. 
the church is not retracting. Like the movement of God is alive and well because God is on the move and his kingdom is advancing and expanding. And we are a part of that and it's unstoppable. Now, Pastor Joel, last week as we started off this section called Unstoppable, he was in Acts chapter 5, verse 1 through 16. And I want to tell you, it's, it's one of the, the most odd passages when you read it at first, because what happens, if you were here last week, and Pastor Joel did an awesome job talking through a very difficult passage of Scripture, because you have this married couple, this husband and wife, who what happens is, is a crazy story. They pretend to give a massive amount of money to the church while lying and secretly keeping the money for themselves and acting like they gave it all. Now, nobody asked them to do it. Nobody asked them to sell their piece of property and give the money to the church. But they wanted to pretend and look like they were doing that. And so they, they did it, and then immediately they dropped dead. It's the craziest story. Now, I just want to say this. People cheat God in the church all the time. We're sinful people. Churches are made up of, of sinful people, right? And, and, and there are hypocrites. As long as I've lived, there have been hypocrites. I, many times, have been a hypocrite. And yet, listen, these two people pretend they're, they're hypocritical. They cheat God and, and they die. It's a bit mysterious because God doesn't always kill off people who cheat him or lie or manipulate, right? Right? You're here, so you get me? Yeah? Listen, why does this happen? I, I don't know. I mean, I, last week, Joel did a great job. I can't give you answers or exactly why God acted like that, but I can tell you this, that what it says to me is that God started a movement of followers of Jesus who were generously and radically giving up their lives and everything they had for Jesus and his kingdom, and no deception or division or hypocrisy will derail what God is doing. Do you hear me? Like God was not going to tolerate it because God will let nothing stop his church. Because the movement of Jesus, listen, it does not run on the power of man but it runs on the power of God. And no scheme or no scandal will ever stop that. You know, at times in our country, I look at the church, and sometimes I see, um, I see churches that look plateaued or, or dying. I see pastors who sometimes cheat or, or um, do sinful things. I see Christians that are sometimes involved in hypocrisy and scandal, and I look at it, and I go, what is going on? And listen, I just want to say, I think God hates all of those things more than even we do, but do not be mistaken. The kingdom of God, in the midst of any kind of opposition or obstacle, will not stop, will not retreat, will not back down. God will finish what he started, despite our own sinfulness in the midst of it. It is unstoppable. You have your Bibles. We're going to look at Acts chapter 5, verse 17. And, and last week, when we started off this series, we said this scandal of this couple that was pretending that were hypocrites, I mean, it, it rocked the church. It had to. I mean, because it says in 
in verse 15 or 16, it says fear gripped the whole church. I mean, they were like, what in the world? Here you have people who cheat, and all of a sudden they drop dead immediately. And so fear gripped the whole church. But you know what? The, the most interesting thing about it is right after that, it says, but multitudes of people began to believe and follow Jesus. Isn't that crazy? That I mean, the, it, it, if, if you could give this, now this is just a joke, but if you could give this new little church a name, it's like, join us, if you lie, you die. And yet, and yet, what happens is that in the midst of that scandal, the church of Jesus grows almost more than ever. People are still following Jesus. It's kind of unexplainable. Now, I, I want to read what happens next. So find yourself to verse 17 of chapter 5 in Acts, and let's see what happens next. Verse 17 says this, But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, are, and filled with jealousy. So, so stop right there for just a second. So you got the high priest, uh, so, so he's a member of the Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council. They're kind of like the governing and the religious leaders at this point. It says that they rose up, against, I just told you, all of a sudden this movement of Christians were growing, like, and, and word is spreading, and people are following Jesus more than ever, and so the religious leaders, they, they, they step up, and they're, it says they're filled with jealousy. This is the interesting thing. They're in power. They, they, are in, they have control. Like, they, they run the, the government, they, they're, they're leaders of the law, they, they lead the, the temple, like they have all the power and religious control and authority, and yet they're jealous of this grassroots movement of Christians that are spreading like wildfire. What in the world? They're jealous of, I guess, the attention. They're, they're jealous of the, the people who are beginning to follow Jesus. And look what it says in verse 18. So what did they do? They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. Once again, and they've done this before, I mean, it's the very reason they killed Jesus, right? Is we've got to stop this insurrection. We've got to stop this rebellion. We've got to stop these people from, and, and, and yet you know who Jesus was. You, you know what his life looked like, and you know what his followers are. All they've done to this point is give up themselves in a generous, radically risky way to love, to heal other people, to serve other people, and yet the leaders of the religious authority they're jealous of this, and so they try to shut it down. They try to stop it. But what's this series called? Unstoppable. So they put him in jail. They arrested Peter, some of the other disciples. But look what happens in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, Go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. <laughs> That's what the angel said. The angel opened the doors of the prison. The very night they're put in jail, lets them out and says, go back to the place where you got arrested and do the same thing again. Talk about the one who leads to life, Jesus. It's interesting that the angel uses that word 
life to talk about the message of Jesus, right? So, look what happens. Verse 21, and when they heard this, they did it. They entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, I have a question. Why why does God supernaturally break them out of jail? I mean, why does God, I mean, God could get this done a million ways, right? Did God need those few guys? I I mean, I I don't know, but why does God supernaturally send an angel, break them out of jail, open the prison walls, and let them go out? Is it because God wanted them out of suffering and harm and danger of jail? I mean, there are Christians right now around the world who are in prison because they believe and follow Jesus. It happens around our world. So why, why does God set them free? Why does, is it because God wants them out of danger? God doesn't want people to have to suffer on, on his behalf? No, the angel says, listen, go now and go back to the temple where you got arrested and speak to the people all the words of the Lord. Go back and do the same risky thing again. And, and, and basically what the angel's saying, and I can't promise it to you that you won't end up here again. But I want you to go and I want you to do what God has called you to do. The angel doesn't say, now that you're free from jail, go run for your life and find somewhere safe. He doesn't say, flee somewhere else. He says, go back to the place that gives you the largest platform to share with the most people, with every man, woman, and child, that the gospel of Jesus really is the key of life. It's the very reason that you ended up in jail but I'm asking you to do it again. Now, I say that to tell you this. And I step on your toes and maybe mine too in the process this morning. But I think one of the biggest problems with the church, especially in our country, is that sometimes safety and comfort and ease is an idol that we worship more than God himself. We assume that God is most concerned with keeping us safe and happy and healthy and comfortable. Now, you may not say that out loud, but we somehow think that that's true. But God is much more concerned with his mission and his kingdom getting to every man, woman, and child on this earth. And if your life is to be spent in the process, then it's worth it. I'm convinced that many of us who go to church every Sunday and we're Christians and we're followers of Jesus may often forfeit what God wants us to do with our lives as we pursue safety and comfort in the path of least resistance. I didn't get any amens. It's convicting because as I read this passage and read about these early disciples and the the riskiness of their faith, sometimes as a suburban American Christian, I'm a bit convicted by that. And I ask myself, am I shortcutting the mission of Jesus because I have a mission to keep my life comfortable and easy? All all I'll say is don't shortcut the mission of God because you're scared of the risk. Because when God asks you to follow Jesus, I feel like he asks us to go all in. 
Look at the next part of verse 21. It says, now, now when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel. So they called together all the governing authorities and look, they sent to the prison to have them brought. So, so listen to what's going on here. They, they think for a minute, okay, there's a ruckus going on down at the temple. There's people talking about Jesus again. Let's go back and get those guys out of prison and make an example out of them. They go to the prison, and what happens? Look at verse 22. But when the officers came, they did not find them in prison, so they returned and reported, we found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Right? Nobody's there. They're gone. Little do they know that's the same guys who are back at the temple talking about Jesus, right? Look at verse 24. Now when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. So now remember, these are the same guys who were in charge when Jesus was crucified, arrested and crucified. And then a few days later, they heard he rose from the dead, went to the tomb, it was empty. Same guys. They told these guys, don't talk about Jesus, put him in jail. They run to the prison the next day. What's in the prison? It's empty. You would think at some point they begin to clue in. You can't stop what God's doing. But it says they're perplexed. And they're wondering, what is this going to come to? In other words, how is this all going to turn out? Well, look how it's turned out. You know, <clears throat> I, I'll say this about these religious guys, because I think sometimes these governing leaders, they get a bad rap. We, we say they're the ones who killed Jesus. They, they <clears throat> you know, they were blind and, and ridiculously ignorant, and, and we give them a hard time. But here's the thing. They were the people in power, and they were desperately clinging to their power and control. And sometimes we do the same thing, don't we? Like, sometimes we cling to our wealth and our power and our prestige and our success, and that's what these guys are doing. And this seems to be a threat to all of that, and so they're clinging to it. It's, it's an interesting thing. Look at, look at verse... Um, Look at verse 20, where do we end? Verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. So they said, guess what, guys? The same guys you put in jail, they're back teaching the people about Jesus. Look at verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Look, <laughs> these are the guys in charge. These are the guys who have all the power, legally and religiously. They're in charge. And what does it say about them? It, the guys who were locked up, followers of Jesus, they're courageously back in the temple talking about Jesus. But the guys in power, it says when they went to get them, they went to get them to bring them back in front of them it says, but not by force. They didn't want to use force because they were afraid. What are they afraid of? Well, they ought to be afraid. It's just interesting to me. They were afraid of being stoned by the people. Here's, 
because they're more fearful of man than they are of God. But listen to what, listen to what happens. The interesting thing here is it says, but not by force. So they literally go to these guys and they're afraid to use force, so they don't. So they're just saying, hey, you guys need to come with us. And what do Peter and the disciples do? They go with them. Why? Because they're not afraid. Why? God just broke them out of prison last night. You can take me. You can stand me before you. You can issue whatever sentence. We even saw you kill Jesus, but three days later he rose from the dead. We have nothing to fear. You can take my life. Like Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said when they put them in the fiery furnace, they said, listen, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't and we burn up, we will not obey you, we will obey God because he is the ultimate authority and he has all the power. They're back in the temple preaching and teaching about Jesus. The religious leaders are afraid. They, they, they ask them to come and so the disciples come and stand in front of them. Listen, I just want to make this statement. Is this, if you don't, what you see is a contrast of control and power here. The disciples trust in God's power, and the religious leaders and authority are trusting in their own power. And we have this dilemma all the time, you guys. We, we do. We are pretty powerful, wealthy people who like to be in control. And that fights against trust and faith in God and his sovereignty and his power. And I'll just say this, if you don't believe and trust in God's power, if you don't surrender to God's power, you will spend your life fighting for your own power. And that is a futile thing to do. And if you find yourself clinging to control and thinking you have to make it all happen and you have to, you, you have to survive and you have to be powerful and you have to make sure everything goes your way, I'm going to tell you, it is an endless battle, and I feel like that's what these guys are doing. And the disciples, they don't have any power, so they're only trusting in God's power and authority. Look at verse 27. And when they brought them, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in this name. He won't even say Jesus, right? Did you get that? We told you not to talk about this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. Again, they won't say Jesus. They say this man's blood, right? You keep talking about Jesus. Now you've filled Jerusalem with all this stuff and you're intending us to be guilty for this man's death. Well, I have a question for you. Who ordered for this man to be killed? This same group of people. Isn't that interesting? And yet they're saying, why are you intending on us looking guilty for this man's death? You see, that's the problem. You see, that's the very problem. Because they didn't want personal responsibility in the death of Jesus. You know, the thing that keeps most people from believing and following and surrendering to Jesus is an unwillingness to accept our own guilt and responsibility for our own sin. Listen, the only prerequisite 
for following and believing in Jesus is that you have to recognize that you need Jesus. Are you with me? And these guys, they don't need anybody. They have the power. They have the control. They have the education. They don't need Jesus. They don't need anybody. And that kind of arrogance, that kind of unwillingness, and and you guys, we could be faulty for this, that kind of unwillingness to surrender and say, God, I'm a mess. I'm guilty. I'm the reason Jesus died on the cross. And if you're not willing to say that, then you don't need a Savior. Because you and I are living to save ourselves. I think that's the problem here. As long as we deny responsibility for our own sin, we don't really need Jesus. Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered. Now here's the climax. Here's the part where you want to cheer, kind of. But verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered. We must obey God rather than men. And look what they say. They say, the God of our fathers. Now, it's interesting because I think these are words of respect here. Even though they're saying, listen, we're going to obey God before we obey you. I mean, that's the insinuation here, right? But look what they say next. The God of our fathers. Now, they're talking to the religious leaders, children of Abraham, Jewish people. They're saying, the God of our fathers the same God you worship and talk about and represent, the God of our fathers raised Jesus up. This is what they're trying to get them to see. Whom you killed by hanging on a tree, but God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior, as king of greater authority than you have. To give repentance to Israel. See, Who do these guys represent? The Sanhedrin, the religious ruling council, the Senate, they represent Israel. And these guys are saying, listen, the God of all creation, the God of our fathers, he sent Jesus. He raised Jesus. Jesus is the leader. Jesus is the Savior. And it was to give repentance, not just for us, but for you too. And the forgiveness of sins. But see, that's the thing is, He just said, you don't don't need forgiveness of sins when you're not guilty of anything. That's the problem. Verse 32. These apostles close by saying, and we are witnesses to these things, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey Him. I I love their answer. Their answer here is, they, they could have just said in this moment, right? They could have just said in this moment, we'll do whatever you say. Sure, you want us to stop talking about Jesus? We'll stop talking about Jesus. And just gone and not done that, right? But but remember whose power they're relying on? Remember who they said they have to obey? They don't need to manipulate to get out of the situation. They don't need to lie to get out of the situation. Because in the end, they don't trust in their own power or manipulative ability or scheming to get out of this. They simply say, we have to obey God regardless of what you tell us to do. We're not going to be silent. 
This is a quandary for these leaders. Listen, I want you to to know something, and I, I struggled with this when I read this this past week. This statement of, we must obey God. They say must, like we have to. We must obey God rather than men. That is a decision that you and I are faced with multiple times every single day. Right? Are you with me? Listen, when you wake up in the morning, you have to decide who you're going to please with your life, with your words, with your money, with your allegiance, with your affection, at school, at work, when you filed your taxes this past week, if you did, the way you treat other people, the way you speak to your spouse, the way you spend your money, the way you date, the way you post on social media, Whenever you do anything, you are making a choice. Who am I seeking to honor and please with my life? And when you live to please man, when you live for the applause and approval of man, it is a futile battle of comparison and competition for image, success, money, pleasure, and personal legacy. And the world says that's what you ought to live for but I'm saying to you it's not worth it. There is only one audience you have to honor and please, and that is the God who made you and knows you and loves you. Why do we care more about what man says and sees than what God says and sees? I don't know. It's a trap. You don't have to fall in it because, see, when you recognize that God is the one who has all the power, that God is the one ultimately in charge, you don't have to scheme, you don't have to manipulate, you don't have to lie. You simply have to say what they said. We must obey God rather than men. You see, they were convinced of something. It says it in verse 32, look, it says, and we are witnesses to these things. They had seen the power of God, right? They saw him raise Jesus from the dead. They saw Jesus calm the sea. They saw him heal people. They saw him raise people from the dead. They had seen the power of God. And listen, I'm going to tell you in this room, if you're a follower of Jesus, I bet you've seen the power of God in your life too. You've seen God do things in your own life. You've seen God change you. You've seen God change people around you. You've seen the power of God at work. And they say, we're witnesses of these things. We've seen God at work. And then the second thing they say in verse 32 is, look, they say, and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to us. And guess what they say? Not only have we seen the power of God, but we have the presence of God. God, the same Spirit who rose Jesus from the dead, now lives in us and gives us the same power. I think a lot of times we as followers of Jesus don't live that way. Understanding that the power of God, that he has all the power, and he's put that power inside of me and you when we began to believe and follow Jesus. And if God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 33, look, when they heard this, when the religious leaders heard their answer, They were enraged and wanted to kill them. Of course they did. But look at this. Here's a great turn of events in verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. All right, 
So listen, there's this guy Gamaliel. He's one of these leaders. He's a very well-respected Pharisee on this council. And he stands up and says, hey, guys, I got something to say. Send these guys, these Jesus followers, outside for a minute because I need to tell you about something. Now, what's about to happen? Now, before we get to what he's going to say, I just want to tell you, give you a little history here on who this guy is. It's the first time he's mentioned, but guess what? Later on, you're going to find out that this guy was actually the teacher of a young student named Saul, who we will also know as Paul, who writes most of the rest of the New Testament as a follower of Jesus later on. Just, we don't, we're not going to say anything more about that, but you might want to investigate that later. This is the guy who stands up and says, hey, wait, let's take a pause, a time out. I have something to say. And look what he says in verse 35. He said to the men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. Now, he gives them a little history lesson. He says, guys, for, for before these days, Thutis rose up, claiming to be somebody. And a number of men, about 400, joined him. But then he was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. There was a guy, Thutis, and he, he, he started a movement. People followed him. He was popular. He was a leader. And then he died, and then it fizzled out. Remember this? And they're all going, yeah, we remember that. And then look what he says next. Verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. Remember that? Yeah, we remember that. Verse 38. Gamaliel says, so I present, so in this present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. Look what he says, his reason. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. Did you hear him? If it is of God, you can't stop it. You might even be found opposing God. Wow. God uses one of the religious guys on the council to speak wisdom into the room and say this. What if? What if in your opposition of these guys, what if you fight against these guys? What if you and I fight for power and prestige and success and money and safety and survival our whole life only to stand in the end opposing the very movement and power of the Almighty God? I bet the room was a little silent. Look what the next phrase says in verse 39. So they took his advice. Isn't that interesting? He must have been a respected dude. I'm not sure why, but it says they took his advice. And verse 40 says, and when they had called in the, the apostles, look what they do. They beat them. Instead of kill them, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus. Same song, different verse. Don't talk about Jesus anymore and let them go. You know what I just want to say right there for just a second? Just pause. I'm so thankful for Gamaliel's. I'm so thankful for people 
who are willing to risk what other people may think in the moment to stand up for people in desperate situations with their backs against the wall. Because I'll tell you, it's often easy to live for myself and look the other way. But Gamaliel in this moment says, guys, stop. Like, what if you're opposing God? Like, he was willing to to risk. He says it respectfully, but he speaks up and he stands up for somebody else who doesn't have power and authority. I think, listen, I know that this isn't exactly the point of the text, but I think as followers of Jesus, we have that responsibility. When we see injustice, when we see people who don't have power, and, and they're, listen, it's our job as followers of Jesus to stand in the gap. Look what happens. He says, they beat them and tell them not to talk about Jesus anymore. And then look at what's verse 41. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. For what name? For Jesus. It says, did you see that? It says they left there. They left there not complaining, not discouraged, not fearful, running for their lives, but rejoicing that they were privileged to suffer for the name of Jesus. They were excited that the mission and the message of Jesus cost them something. You know, like what I said earlier, I'm afraid that in our world, especially in our church in the United States, in this suburban context, I asked myself when I read that, I asked myself this question this past week, how much is living my life for Jesus costing me? Because, because here's why I ask the question. Because if it's not costing me anything, then I have to conclude that it's either not primarily my mission or I'm not risking enough for it. I I just think, I think that in the end, we will either live for our own power and success and comfort, or we will rely on God's power. So, I'll tell you this quick story. It kind of relates to this a little bit. I'll tell you why. So, years ago, my great-grandmother, who was just kind of the anchor of my family, she was a follower of Jesus. I looked up to her growing up. She influenced my mom to become a Christian. She influenced me to become a follower of Jesus. But she was a follower of Jesus in a family with not many other followers of Jesus. She was amazing. She generously gave her life to so many people, prayed diligently, taught me so much about following Jesus. But at the end of her life, her body really wore out. And she didn't have much money. And she didn't have the ability, really, financially, to be put in an assisted living center or anything. So my mom, who was a nurse, gave up her career, literally, to move in with my grandmother in the single-wide trailer that my great-grandmother lived in to take care of her in the last two years of her life. And I was in college at the time, and I looked at it, and I, I, I don't think I truly understood what my mom was giving up. And one time, I said... My mom was there when my great-grandmother passed away, and, and, and she walked through all those moments with her. And I, I, I'm not saying that everybody's supposed to do exactly that. That's not what this story's about. But listen, um, I asked my mom, I was like, Mom, why did you give up your job, and why did you move out of 
the house. My, my sister was still living at home at that time, and they both moved in with my great-grandmother to take care of her. I said, Mom, why did you, you do that? And she just said, I mean, it was just a quiet conversation. She said, um, it, it's hard. It's not an easy thing. I, I won't lie. It was very tough. And there are days I cry about it. She's like, but, Will, it's, it's a privilege to be able to give up part of my life for someone who has given me so much. Now, this isn't a sermon about taking care of your elders. But listen, that's what these guys are saying. When they left the council, they're rejoicing because they were able to suffer a little bit for the one who suffered to forgive them and give them eternal life forever. In other words, what they're saying is if it cost us our money, our homes, our life, if they kill us, then we will consider it worthy to suffer for the one who's given his life for us. You and I are called to nothing less. I think the one thing the world needs to see is that if we believe in Jesus, will we back it up with our lives? Will we risk everything for him? Verse 42, here's the end. And every day, <laughs> and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease, they didn't stop teaching and preaching what? That the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior is Jesus. Don't miss that, you guys. They didn't stop. Prison walls didn't stop them. Threats couldn't stop them. Danger couldn't stop them. Nothing can stop the power of God from overcoming any obstacle. I'm going to ask you to stand with me for just a second. As I thought about this passage this week. <clears throat> I, I don't know what you came in here facing this morning. I know that you're getting ready to leave here and go back into life. And there may be a lot going on in life, in your family, in your relationships at work. There may, there may be a situation in your life right now where it's different from this, but maybe you feel like your back's against the wall too. Maybe you feel like you're stuck in a tough situation, a difficult circumstance. And maybe at times you and I are tempted to worry, to fear, like these guys did. Maybe, maybe, maybe it's to be afraid. Maybe it's to manipulate and scheme. You feel like you have to figure it out or solve it or grasp, cling to your power. Or, or you, you've got to figure it out. I can tell you this, that that's futile. But, but these guys knew the God who has all the power. And listen, here's what you need to know. When you choose to believe and follow Jesus, I said this earlier and I'll say it again. The power of the eternal, everlasting, almighty God. I mean, there's evidence of it everywhere. He is ultimately in control. And when you choose to give your life to Jesus, the Bible says that the Holy Spirit 
the Spirit of the Almighty God comes to live in you, the same Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead, that set these prison doors open, the same Spirit moves inside of you and gives you the same kind of power. You have nothing to fear. Nothing. You don't have to fear man. You don't have to live grasping for control or power any longer. Regardless of what's happening in your life, regardless of how dark it seems, this was a desperate situation for these guys. And they said, listen, I know we're facing tough odds here. We must obey God rather than man. That choice is yours today. But I can tell you this. Our God is trustworthy and powerful and strong and present. And you can trust Him. I'm going to pray for you that God would give you the courage to do that no matter what you face today. Would you pray with me? God, I'm just so thankful that in the midst of my fear and worry and sometimes my desperate clinging to my own power or success or survival, God, you're gracious and patient with me. And then you give me an example like this to read in your word, where I see followers of Jesus who had way less than I have, and yet they trust you and surrender to you completely. God, would you give us that kind of courage? God, in our context, in, in Cane Bay, in, in, in this church, would you help us to risk everything for your name and for your mission and for your kingdom. God, there's a world that I believe is dying to see authentic, surrendered Christians truly trusting in your power and not our own. God, would we live for your kingdom and your glory. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen.